Listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a World Affairs Council conversation with authoritative voices discussing significant newsmaking issues and individuals. Sponsored by Greenberg Traurig, LLP. It is especially appropriate today to talk about the Marshall Plan since on May 8, 1945, the U.S. and its European allies celebrated Victory in Europe Day marking the point when the Nazis surrendered, thus beginning the discussion of reparations and recovery. Turning to this year, traditional alliances are strained, making it especially valuable to remember the Marshall Plan, which by most accounts is viewed as a success of U.S. foreign policy. We are joined by Ben Steele, an economist who is a senior fellow and director of international economics at the Council on Foreign Relations. He is the author of The Marshall Plan, Dawn of the Cold War, published this past February by Simon & Schuster. And I learned today that, in fact, just uh, a a week or two ago, Vice President Biden was seen on the train going from Washington to New York reading the Marshall Plan. So it's being well-read. Ben, in reading your book, I realized that my knowledge of the Marshall Plan was superficial, barely scratched the surface, and I suspect that many of our listeners today will, upon hearing your remarks and hopefully reading your book soon, will come away with a similar feeling. So let's begin our conversation with this. What were the origins of the Marshall Plan? At the end of the fighting in Europe in May of 1945, President Truman had been in office for a mere few weeks. Um, He was an accidental president and certainly had no intention of overthrowing in any way the foreign policy architecture that had been set up by FDR. In particular, he was determined to go forward with FDR's pledge made in Tehran at the Allied War Leaders Conference in 1943 to bring home the three million American troops from Europe within two years Mm -hmm. of the end of the fighting. But by 1946, the military establishment in the United States realized that they had a problem because Stalin was showing that he was not going to be satisfied with his newly expanded borders, his newly expanded security buffer in Eastern Europe. He was pressing territorial claims in Turkey and Iran. Then fast forward to February of 47, and the British, who are now nearly bankrupt, come to the State Department and say they're pulling 40,000 troops out of Greece, where they were protecting the government against communist insurgents. So the State Department realizes that they have an enormous problem. And if they don't find some way mm-hmm. to protect vital American economic and security interests in Western Europe without having to rely on the military, that they have an insurmountable problem. So what do they do? And they decide they're going to do something revolutionary. They're going to try to leverage America's economic dominance in the world, which is at its apex. In that period, America accounts for about half of all world manufacturing output in order to revitalize, reconstruct, rehabilitate Western Europe as quickly as possible and to counter the Soviet conventional military force dominance in Europe with this economic force. So this is really a revolutionary idea in diplomatic history. So why was it called the Marshall Plan? Was he really the originator of it? These ideas had already started percolating, as I said, in the military establishment, at least as early as 1946. People like Secretary of War Henry Stimson, Army Secretary Kenneth Royal, Navy Secretary, later Defense Secretary Jim Forrestal, all Mm -hmm. these people were were looking for non-military means 
to protect American interests. But there were others who took the ball, as it were, and started fleshing out the details of what that economic intervention would look like. One was famed diplomat George Kennan, mm -hmm. who was really the architect of the geostrategy behind the Marshall Plan. This is really the first major component of his new geostrategy of containing the Soviet Union. Famous Houstonian, Will Clayton, mm -hmm. Undersecretary for Economic Affairs, in many ways he's- sort of an unsung hero of Absolutely, this. in many ways he sh I think he should be considered the father of the European Union. He was the one who made European economic and political integration the um, central theme of the Marshall Plan. Now, General Marshall himself is not really an architect of the Marshall Plan in terms of putting together the details, but he's a master synthesizer, no doubt, and a master salesman. Clark Clifford, who was President Truman's primary political advisor, came to him after Marshall's iconic Harvard speech in June of 47 and said, you know, we really should call this plan the Truman Plan. And President Truman, being a wise man politically, laughed and said no. He said, any plan going before Congress bearing my name will twitch a few times, go belly up and die. He said, but even the worst Republican could not vote against a plan named after the general. And, and, and indeed, it's yes. very difficult imagining this plan going through a Republican Well, Congress. And that's what I wanted to ask you, because the time then was perhaps a little bit like today. I mean, there was a move slightly towards protectionism and certainly not having more U.S. entanglement in Europe. So how did this get through Congress? Part of it has to do with the personalities involved. General Marshall was certainly critical. He was a bridge between the Democratic White House and the Republican Congress. The Republican chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Arthur Vandenberg, a former isolationist who therefore has credibility with the Republican Congress, he plays a vital bridge role, not just in passing through the Marshall Aid legislation in April of 48, but the NATO legislation one year later. So he deserves an enormous amount of credit. But there was also a major campaign of education. Hundreds of congressmen traveled to Europe in the summer and early fall of 1947 to see conditions on the ground. In the United States, there was what was called a Marshall Plan to uh, implement the Marshall Plan. What was the vote? Um, the, the vote was pretty overwhelming in the end in favor. There were many Republican congressmen in the heartland who voted against, but overwhelming both in the Senate and the House. But many things happened between the fall of 47 and the spring of 48. In particular, Stalin instigated a coup in Czechoslovakia in February of 1948. Czechoslovakia had a legitimate coalition government with two-thirds small-D Democrats, one-third communists. Stalin, who is determined to make sure that the Czechs do not participate in the Marshall Plan, pushes his communist allies in the Czech government to push the Democrats out of power. Hmm. The foreign minister, Jan Masaryk, actually falls to his death mysteriously in March, just a few weeks later. And this galvanized the Congress. They came to the conclusion that if they didn't take firm action to buttress American interest in Western Europe, then Stalin would push as far as he could, not necessarily using the military. Mm -hmm. But there were communist fifth columns he could have used. For example, in Italy and France, the uh, national communist parties were extremely 
powerful. You make the argument that if the Marshall Plan had not taken place, that it's quite possible that Italy and Greece might have been lost pretty quickly to communism. Absolutely. In fact, one of the reasons why President Truman considered it absolutely vital to hold the vote on the Marshall legislation by early April at the latest was because critical elections were coming up in Italy at the end of the month. And he wanted to show Italians that this aid program was real. Get, get in front of it. Yes, in order to encourage the public to vote for the non-communist parties. In reading your book, I thought of this question. I'm wondering if you've been asked it before. Following the breakup of the Soviet Union, truly the United States worked very hard to help Russia's economy. You certainly saw on the other side an expansion of NATO. And in a sense, that created greater vulnerability to Russia. Mm -hmm. By doing that, that we did after the fall of the Soviet Union, in a sense, was it not the same thing as what we did with the Marshall Plan by making, at that point, Stalin feel more isolated? We had good reasons to do it in the case of the Marshall Plan. Stalin was making clear that he was going to push what he considered his security buffer as far west as he could. But I think here's the critical difference between the Marshall diplomacy and the NATO expansion diplomacy. Mm -hmm. We remember the Marshall Plan today because it was visionary, but it was also hard-headed. If we had defined success in the late 1940s to be bringing, say, Czechoslovakia and Poland into the Marshall Plan, we would have failed mm -hmm. because we would have had to go to war in order to do that. And it was one of the primary aims of the Marshall Plan to defend our vital economic and security interests in Europe without having to go to war. In the case of NATO expansion, we didn't fully reckon. Or the economic assistance that we provided or training that we provided to Russia. You're talking about after the yep. breakup of the mm -hmm. Soviet Union. That was no doubt important in improving relations with Russia, but the NATO expansion pushed very much in the other direction. George Kennan, who's now in his late 90s when the debate on NATO expansion goes into full swing in the late 1990s, interestingly enough, was staunchly against NATO expansion. He argued that this was what we fought the Cold War for, to get to this moment where uh, Russia would drop its communist ideology and that we should work first to try to come to an understanding with Russia as to what sovereignty and independence would mean in Central and Eastern Europe. And he warned that NATO expansion would lead to very detrimental deterioration in U.S. Russian You know, we probably hear too often the word Marshall Plan as a panacea for other economic distressed areas. You heard people say in the Middle East we ought to have a Marshall Plan. Why is this so different, and where are people making a mistake in trying to compare an economic injection to other troubled sure. regions? Well, take Iraq and Afghanistan. Yeah. The United States has already spent over $200 billion in reconstruction aid alone in Iraq and Afghanistan. To put that in perspective, that's over 50% more than the totality of Marshall aid in current dollars. Mm. So it's not as if we haven't tried reconstruction aid as a diplomatic tool, but we've failed entirely in terms of our achieving our economic and political. So in today's dollars, the Marshall Plan was how much? About $135 billion. 
So over 200 billion is what we've spent on reconstruction in Iraq and Afghanistan. What was missing in the case of Iraq and Afghanistan was internal and external security, which was absolutely vital to the Marshall Plan. And as I explain in the book, it's impossible to look at the Marshall Plan separate from NATO. Uh, in fact, the State Department came to refer to NATO as a quote-unquote military ERP, European Recovery Program, which was the formal name of the Marshall Plan. And without that security element, the Western Europeans wouldn't have had the confidence to pursue this American integration agenda, and you wouldn't have seen the enormously important revitalization of private investment in Europe. And that's what we failed to do in the cases of Iraq and Afghanistan. So when people talk about Marshall Plans in, say, Ukraine mm -hmm. or Syria, they're ignoring the fact that you simply cannot get economic revitalization without first providing basic security for the population. Well, I want to thank you very much for being with us. I've enjoyed very much reading the book. You're an economist, but as Richard Haas says, you're an economist who can write in a lively manner. And I certainly did enjoy it. I want to encourage our listeners to pick up the Marshall Plan, Dawn of the Cold War. Thanks again, Ben, for being our guest on Global IQ Minute. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a production of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Subscribe and rate Global IQ Minute on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. For information about a World Affairs Council in your community, visit worldaffairscouncils.org. Global IQ Minute is sponsored by Greenberg Traurig LLP, a global firm with 2,000 attorneys in 38 offices across the globe. Visit the firm at gtlaw.com. <laughs>